This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the Resolution Foundation. I'm James Smith. I'm Research Director here at the, here at the Foundation. Now, unless you've been living in a cave for the past year, you will have noticed that inflation has been somewhat high. So, uh, you know, we, we clearly have an inflation problem and we have an inflation problem that seems to be lasting longer than we expected and seems to be hitting people on low incomes harder uh, than those on, on high incomes. So it's definitely the, the big issue of the day. Um, so that's going to be the subject of today's, today's events. Unfortunately, we have two absolutely superb speakers to hold your hand through all the things that are going on in the world of inflation. So first of all, we have Stephen King, who has written a rather scary book about inflation. Now, I promised myself I would make no jokes about Stephen King and scary books, but if you're here for the horror genre, you're, you're in the wrong place. This is rather more real, but still, uh, still very scary stuff. Um, Stephen is, is, apart from being an author, in, in your spare time, you work as a senior advisor at HSBC. I don't know how that's you correct. do both yeah. these things, but I do. Uh, but that's um, that'll keep you keep you pretty pretty busy. And you were formerly uh, chief global economist there there as well as um, amongst some other jobs. And then we're going to hear from Sylvia Ardania. Um, who is currently Chief European Economist at Barclays. So another excellent person looking across countries at inflation, having worked at uh, several other banks and in academia. So uh, two great speakers. Basically, we're, we'll hear about the book, we'll hear Sylvia's views, and then there'll be time for Q&A and uh, uh, even from people in the audience here in person, uh, as well as online. So online, you can take part bar through our, uh, through Slido, uh, the hashtag where no brains were busted, but the hashtag is high inflation, uh, just to give you a sense of uh, where we're, uh, where we're heading, uh, heading with all this. Um, but, um, and we'll have a combination of uh, online questions, but also uh, questions from the from the audience. Uh, so, without further ado, I'm going to hand it over to Stephen. Well, thank you very much. Take us through what's uh, what's in his book. And I should mention, by the way, in the context of inflation, uh, this book is available upstairs at a discount. So, if we had that everywhere, we'd have less of an inflation problem. <laughs> so, uh, be aware of that too. Yeah, that might be a confusion of relative prices with the general <laughs> price level, but uh, that's a separate issue. Uh, there may be an excess of these books, but not necessarily uh, an excess of deflation. Um, well, thank you very much for, for coming along um, today. Um, I'm going to say a few words about a particular aspect of this book, which is the history, uh, because I think that we as economists don't necessarily know our history that well. Um, and it turns out there's a very, very rich history um, of periods of inflation. And I've looked back through their history to try to get a sense as to what we might usefully be worrying about um, today. I should also give you a bit of a personal history, which is that 
Um, for much of my career, I have been, I suppose, a deflationist rather than an inflationist. So I found myself kind of changing my mind about two years ago, which was a sort of odd experience for me. Um, but I wasn't the only one. Um, there were others who were warning about the possibility of higher inflation. So in the US, uh, Jason Furman and Larry Summers in particular were talking about it. Um, and in the UK, Martin Wolf at the FT, I think, discovered an inner monetarist lurking inside him, which we hadn't expected, but it was revealed. Um, and Roger Bootle, who famously had talked about the death of inflation a few decades back, was now talking about its resurrection. Um, and Andy Haldane um, at the Bank of England, his valedictory speech uh, before he left, was also talking about the possibility of, of higher inflation. Um, and for those of us who, who saw this coming, um, you might say we saw it coming for the wrong reasons, which is entirely fair criticism. But I think it is worth stressing, when you think about inflation over the last two or three years, it has gone through a series of phases. And I would suggest that as it's gone through these phases, it has become ever more embedded. Um, so what started off as being a series of supply-side shocks associated with semiconductors, second-hand cars, and so on and so forth, then began to become an issue about goods prices more generally. And then people said, well, don't worry, goods prices will go up and then come back down again once the pandemic is over. Uh, but it turned out that it wasn't just goods prices that were rising, but also service sector prices too. Um, and more recently, and this varies admittedly across countries, but more recently, there's evidence also of nominal wage accelerations. Now, I stress the word nominal because obviously real wages in many cases are still falling, but you've seen nominal wages picking up which from a sort of central banking inflation targeting perspective is not the most helpful outcome to come through, which is why some of our central bank has been talking about the need for wage restraint, although that hasn't always proved to be terribly popular. Um, anyway, so um, I wanted to, to emphasize that through this period um, where inflation was picking up, there was, I think, um, a significant bias within the policymaking community to say this can't possibly happen. Um, and I want to give you four quotes. This is not to, to blame anyone in particular. I'm not blaming anyone, but I just want to give these four quotes to give you a flavor of what was argued during the course of 2020 and through 2021. So the first of these quotes is in April 2020 and extends through to August of the following year, by which time those of us who thought that inflation was picking up, you know, I think it was already very clearly established. So of these quotes, um, the first one is this, a reduction in office use, this is of course you know, at the early stage of the pandemic, a reduction in office use could weigh persistently on demand for rental space and rents, which may feed through into lower cost inflation and a period of weaker price inflation. Second quote, um, so far inflation seems a pretty negligible risk. Um, when considering risks of persistent above target inflation before we have recovered most of the lost ground, my attitude is I will believe it if and when I see it. Um, the third quote says, with the economy and the labor market running so far below its medium-term potential, we will ultimately need to close that gap to get inflation sustainably back to target. Not above target, but back to target. And the final one, for anyone who's had a sort of eye on what's been happening on the other side of the Atlantic and the idea of censoring particular words because not allowed to use them anymore, uh, this one says, uh, longer-term inflation expectations have moved much less than actual inflation. Uh, it goes on to say that... Um, uh, current high inflation readings are likely to prove transitory. That's the magic word there. And in any case, the Fed will keep inflation close to our 2% objective over time. 
What I'd like to suggest is that there was, I think, a, a general consensus um, in 2020 and 2021 that the problem that we were faced with was still deflation rather than inflation. There was, if you like, a, almost an intellectual incapacity to recognize that possibly inflation was going to be a bigger problem. Now, I just say I talk about history, and the book does go back over 2,000 years. So I, I wanted to illustrate a number of key points today through some historical examples. Um, now, of course, these don't necessarily apply perfectly to where we are today, but I think they, they usefully illustrate certain aspects of the debate about inflation. So the first of these examples, uh, oh, sorry, actually, before I do that, I, I do want to make one final quote I'm going to find in here, because I think it's quite amusing. Um, I, I do apologize. Um, but this final quote um, is as follows. It says, to a considerable extent, inflation has been the consequence of costs and prices imported from abroad and over which we have no control. And this person went on to say that the consequence of the staggering increase in energy prices at present we put up prices in our country, and the consequence of that will be to depress consumer demand. I've asked people who said that, uh, and the usual response is maybe Andrew Bailey um, or possibly Jay Powell, probably not Christine Lagarde, talk about a country rather than the Eurozone. Uh, but the answer is that it was said by Anthony Barber, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer in February 1974. Um, and back then, there was this strong desire to believe that inflation was only caused by external shocks of one kind or another. Um, and that you could carry on business as usual, not worrying about inflation at all, and simply try to, to deal with the growth consequences of higher oil prices. But the result really was that we ended up with much, much higher inflation. So I'm pleased I remember to mention that. Anyway, back to the history. So in thinking about inflation, you can think about this, I think, in one or two ways. You can describe inflation as being a story of the rising prices of goods, services, wages, profits, rents, whatever it might be. But it's a sort of general idea that the, the price level is increasing relative to the size of the economy. Or alternatively, you can describe inflation as simply the falling value of, of cash over time, that money loses its value. Uh, and just to illustrate this, if you go back over the last few hundred years, um, most of the time you find that there are periods of inflation and periods of deflation that tend to cancel each other out. So money doesn't progressively lose its value, apart from uh, the last 100 years, uh, some wag mentioned that this coincided with the publication of Keynes's general theory. I'm not sure this is entirely true. Uh, but over the last 100 years, there's been a shocking loss of monetary value. Um, so if you happen to hold cash, say in 1900, um, 100 years later, that cash was only worth 2% of what it was worth in 1900. So inflation is a, effectively a sort of destructive process for those who happen to have their savings in cash, which is another way of saying don't have your savings in cash. Anyway, so um, looking back through these history, his historical examples, I start off in the book uh, with inflation in Roman times. Um, and I discovered that there was an awful lot of inflation between the birth of Christ and about 300 AD. Uh, price level um, in the Roman Empire rose by about 20,000% um, over that period of time. Uh, here I'm going to reveal my inner monetarist because it was partly associated with currency debasement. Effectively, you had silver coins, so-called denarii. Um, and the denarii were effectively gradually debased because the silver content in them fell dramatically over that 300-year period. At the end of it, um, you had a situation whereby uh, the emperor Diocletian decided to impose price controls. Um, it was the edict on maximum prices by Diocletian, which was spread across the whole of the Roman Empire. And I think it's interesting, this example, because first of all, the price controls were on a consumer basket very different from the one we have today. Uh, so there's a price control for a male lion, 
which I was quite pleased to discover. Um, no price control for a female lion for some reason, but anyway, a male lion had the price control. Um, and also I can tell you that the price controls manifestly failed. Um, and they failed because you could try to control prices, but ultimately what was happening uh, was a loss of trust in money itself, that people just didn't want to hold money. So uh, the consequence of it was that the price controls failed. And eventually there was a sort of currency reform, which replaced one currency with a, another currency, basically divided by a hundred or a thousand or a million or whatever it was, but the same kind of currency reform you often associate with uh, later hyperinflations. Uh, so the, the story there really is that we can talk about price controls from the perspective of trying to protect certain groups in society. But if you think about price controls in terms of trying to stop inflation, that's a different matter. Um, so it's certainly true that inflation has very big redistributional effects. I mean, no, no society is perfectly indexed for inflation, so you end up with the creation every single time of winners and losers. But stopping inflation overall is not likely to happen, in my view, simply by focusing on uh, price controls. Second example, the French, uh, sorry, the, pr the price revolution, shall I say, of the 16th century. Um, this is another monetary phenomenon, I'm afraid to say. Um, so um, the Spanish sailed to the New World. Um, they found a, a very large mountain um, in Bolivia, which happened to be stuffed full of silver. Uh, and they took most of the silver back across the Atlantic and spent it on fripperies um, in Europe. Um, of course, Sir Francis Drake was involved too, stealing some of the silver as he went across the Atlantic, which is why in Britain he's a hero and in Spain he's a pirate. Um, but anyway, the point about this is that money turned up in, in Europe, it was spent, um, and this is one of the rare occasions over the last 1,000 years when money generally loses its value. So at the beginning of the 16th century, a pound's worth a pound, but the same pound was worth only about 25 pence at the end um, of the uh, 16th century. Third example, the French Revolution. Now this is interesting because it tells you something not just about the supply of money, but also our belief in money. Um, and this is actually oddly relevant for where we are today, partly because of the global financial crisis and the loss of trust in what I would describe as near money substitutes. You know, CDOs, pre-global financial crisis, were loved by people. They were a great store of value. They were an alternative to cash as a way of thinking about how you could store your money. It all went horribly wrong. Um, and you might also say, arguably, there's a connection between the French Revolution and quantitative easing. Um, and the reason for that is that during the French Revolution, um, anyone who could got their money in the form of coins, precious coins, out of France as, as quickly as possible. So there was a sort of disappearance of, of good quality money. Um, and it was replaced by the new revolutionary authorities effectively creating new money uh, in the form of assignats, uh, which were initially linked to land seized from the Catholic Church, uh, but which ultimately proved to be uh, difficult to control, partly because the uh, denominations were too big, so poorer people have, had to have smaller denominations. Uh, and so other money was created, effectively, as, as divisions of this money. Um, and this other money that was created was very, very, very easy to counterfeit. Uh, so before you knew it, you had lots of money being created that no one trusted. And as a consequence, people just wouldn't trade with each other. Um, there was a collapse in terms of economic activity associated with a loss of faith um, in money which I think does have some correlations with the, the global financial crisis, and maybe also with aspects of QE. I'll come back to that in a minute. And then the final example I want to look at um, is the American Civil War. And this is a very important issue, I think, because it demonstrates that we have different preferences in terms of inflation, depending on where our starting point is. So in the American Civil War, uh, you had an awful lot of inflation, particularly in the Confederacy. Um, and after the Civil War was over, and the Unionists have won, 
Um, there was a debate that took place in the US in the sort of late 19th century about whether America should go on to a gold standard whether instead it should be a silver standard. Now, it turned out that the northerners, so to speak, wanted the gold standard. They wanted hard money. Um, and the southerners, the Confederacy, wanted a silver standard. They wanted soft money. Why? Well, the simple answer there is that uh, the, the southerners uh, were typically indebted to the northerners. Um, and so high inflation, uh, negative rural rates, is always a good thing if you're a debtor, which was true of the Confederacy. Uh, low inflation. Um, and, and high real rates is always a good thing um, if you happen to be a creditor. I mention all this because you could arguably say that the Eurozone is a more peaceful version of what happened in the aftermath of the American Civil War because the equivalent of the Unionists um, in the Eurozone is probably countries like Germany or Finland or the Netherlands and the equivalent of those who wanted silver in the 19th century are probably countries like Italy. Um, and what's interesting about this rise in inflation over the course of the last two or three years in the Eurozone is that effectively it's enabled Italy to show a better story in terms of its fiscal position uh, that might have been true three or four years ago because the denominator, the nominal GDP denominator is rising quite quickly because of higher inflation. But if I were a German cash saver, and there are quite a lot of them, I might be a little bit hacked off by this development because I'm thinking, well, I went into the Eurozone thinking it was a gold standard. I've now discovered um, it's a silver standard. Now, my conclusions from all this, and I'm aware that time is running out, so I ought to stop very, very soon. But my conclusions from all this are, first of all, and this is the inner monetarist in me. I'm not a monetarist at all, but I just want to sort of make this clear that money does matter. Um, the second uh, conclusion is that public attitudes matter. Um, and thirdly, and this is particularly true during wartime, the relationship between monetary and fiscal policy matters. And the idea that we can assume at all times that these are entirely independent from each other, that I'm afraid to say is nonsense. They are independent from time to time, but there always comes a point, politically, uh, when the government of the day quite likes a bit of inflation. And it's typically when they get to the point whereby they can't raise taxes any further, they can't cut spending because austerity is too painful, they don't want to default, so what else can they do? Well, they're a debtor, so they can print lots of money, create lots of inflation, effectively impose a sort of hidden inflation wealth tax on those with cash savings. I should stress that those people with cash savings as wealth often are the poorest savers rather than the richest savers. So I think it's important to stress that inflation isn't um, always a solution that people think it might be. So um, I think I'm going to uh, stop there. Um, I just want to, to mention um, one final thing, though, which is that um, in terms of public trust in the modern day uh, context, I think public trust boils down to do central banks deliver on their promises? If they don't deliver on their promises, what do the public think of those central banks? Do they begin to think that um, they're not as competent as they claim to be? And if that sense of competence begins to fall away, does it then become more difficult for the central banks to achieve their own inflationary objectives? And what I'm really getting at there is that the idea that inflation is purely a technocratic problem uh, that can be solved by technocrats alone, history suggests that's not true, uh, that ultimately unless you're in a, a tranquil world of the kind we've been through over the course of the last two or three decades, there is every chance uh, that dealing with inflation involves tough political choices. Uh, to put it very simply, and in the modern era, um, are you prepared to stamp inflation out and accept the consequences of it, which might be a recession, possibly as deep? Can you, as a technocratic central banker, make that kind of decision, or do you require more in the way of political legitimacy 
And do central banks today actually enjoy that level of political legitimacy? I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, definitely some, some troubling warnings from history and some warnings for our, for our central bank. Sylvia, are you, are you more optimistic about the future? or? I would say yes, more optimistic <laughs> that the, the central banks have done already uh, a great deal of work that uh, I think they've acted, we can debate, two months before, two months after, but I think they've done uh, you know, the right policy so far, so I'm definitely more optimistic on that front. Would you like me to say a few words on the book? Great. So first, uh, good evening to, to all of you and thank you for, for inviting me to have the opportunity to comment on this book. And I want to start to saying to those of you who have not read it that I really enjoyed. It's a great book and it's a great book as you have heard from Stephen because it combines history with economics and not just that there is also uh, sociological aspects to it there is the political economy of inflation so i really find it a very throughout and deep analysis of uh, this phenomenon i think uh, the um, you know i find myself uh, very much in agreement with uh, many aspects of these books uh, many of the reasons that uh, Stephen mentions as causes for uh, inflation to come and as well as with uh, many of his recommendations to sort of like prevent that inflation becomes a very important and entrenched macro problem. But um, there are always uh, rooms for disagreement and maybe they are more of the tune of, you know, degrees, right? Uh, you know, how good policymakers have been so far, where is inflation going? And again, perhaps versus the books, I tend to be um, more, um, you know, um, optimistic, I want to say, or, or, you know, I think that overall the central bankers have done a very good job so far. So my, uh, I'm not as critical of the fact that, you know, at the very beginning, uh, somebody might say, that, you know, inflation is temporary, or they said it for three months more or three months less. I think it's worth remembering what was going on at that time. And also it's worth asking what would have, you know, how much the current situation today would have been different if they had raised interest rate three months before or three months after. Fine, perhaps inflation would not have been 10%, it would have been 9 Would that be, you know, such a different, you know, macro environment? And second, I would say um, I, I also believe that, you know, inflation will go down. So I'm more optimistic on the trajectory going forward, but obviously none of us has the crystal ball. We can discuss why I'm more optimistic, but only uh, time will tell, um, you know, what, what will happen. I think I will spend the, you know, couple of, uh, of minutes that, uh, that I've um, uh, left. I want to start first uh, by just reading a few quotes also from the book, but highlighting uh, things, you know, uh, aspects that Stephen uh, underlines that made me think at inflation or, you know, costs and benefit of inflation in, uh, in a deeper way relative to what these days we are all, you know, uh, used to think. Obviously, when we think about inflation, the first things that we have in our mind is, uh, you know, the cost of living crisis, right? <laughs> how, uh, how costly it is for uh, 
for uh, you know to to to, um, uh, to to pay for for the same type of goods or you know how how costly it is for for uh, others to basically well, with the same amount of money you you can really have much less than what you used to be but you know at the very beginning of the book um, you know Stephen uh, goes back and, and reminds us of uh, uh, something that happens during his childhood and that uh, that he says I you know I was uh, born in the 70s and I remember I received uh, you know some some money every every week or every month but uh, I remember which I used to to uh, to buy books and basically he goes through and um, and tell us uh, how um, you know the uh, how what, what what the inflation at that time was was meaning for his ability to to buy these books and uh, I quote I'd sometimes find that the original price printed on the back of a covered paperback had been covered with a sticker which in turn would reveal a new inevitably higher price the temptation to remove the sticker was of course very strong <laughs> but the adhesive used to attach the sticker was typically even stronger and then it obviously goes on but he says the book might have been printed a year or two years earlier but even though the story the words the pages and the cover hadn't changed the price was rising nonetheless and then what is interesting obviously he you know he, he keeps uh, you know going on he also adds another historical experience that is fascinating of which I was not aware and it's what happened in Turkey just in the following page in the 1990s when there was very high inflation and so Stevens tell us their savings were better protected in the form of kitchen appliances than cash and the conclusion to all of this is, is what you know, I, I wanted to um, you know, remind you of, of another cause of inflation, which is inflation creates very strange incentives, distorting economic decisions in ways that makes the otherwise irrational entirely sensible. Take my childhood book buying experience. And then obviously he adds that, you know, there were people who were employed to just attach stickers on the books. So I think, you know, something that again, we, we don't think, you know, uh, it's not the first things that comes to our minds in terms of cost of inflation. I think this aspect of creating inefficiencies and uh, leading to a misallocation of resources is something that uh, I thought it was worth uh, keeping in mind. My second aspect that I wanted to quote is what Stephen already did the quote and it's the experience of the uh, American Civil War and the fact that inflation you know, creates a, a different incentive a different, a, across different types of, of uh, countries or part of countries or, or, ha or people. But um, I think he, uh, so he basically put it, uh, uh, you know, looking at the past and, and translating what it can be for a German or for Italian. But I thought there was, you know, as a consequence of the inflation tax. But I also thought that there is another uh, nice quote that, that uh, Stephen has. And, and basically has to do with the fact that, you know, when we think of inflation, we think of inflation as a tax. But in this context, it can also be seen as an alternative to a national-wide or indeed euro-wide fiscal system. 
So uh, I think what's interesting, he then explore why the ECB might or might not keep interest rate very high, might or might not tolerate inflation higher or lower, not just as a function of, again, the, the, the normal distributional issues that there are, but also as, you know, a potential instrument to avoid an institutional breakup of the, of the euro area. Uh, I think I've exhausted my five minutes. I could uh, keep going on and on, but perhaps we leave the discussion to the disagreements part. <laughs> I may just mention one. Uh, Stephen concluded with the, the uh, interaction between fiscal and monetary policy. How important is monetary independence to avoid fiscal dominance? And to which I fully agree. But I think there is a sentence that, you know, uh, Stephen says where basically he says, rather than being worried about, you know, the fiscal watchdog to do its job, we should just, you know, focus on the monetary authority doing what it should do. And, and again, here where it's uh, an angle in which I disagree, I think, uh, you know, the fiscal aspect is also important and perhaps I might previous life, life I was a fiscal hawk while you were a monetary dove and in my DNA I remain such. I think it's very important that the fiscal watchdog or the fiscal rules or any um, sort of like, um, um, you know, um, the, the monetary authorities are, are, I think the independence is a big achievement that we have had and I'm more optimistic that Steve, uh, perhaps Stephen, that that will, will remain so, but I think monetary independence can, uh, at least in the euro area, can really uh, be, um, you know, put in practice if fiscal policy and governments keeps their house in order. Otherwise, the trade-offs will become quite complicated. And with that, thank you. I'll, I'll stop here. Thank you, Sylvia. All right, we've got about half an hour for discussion now. So I suggest we, we sort of chunk it up in terms of thinking about lessons from uh, the past, some of the st things Stephen has talked about, talk a bit about the situation uh, that we've got now, and then think a bit about prospects for inflation going forward. So uh, past, present, future is how we're going to do it. It's going to be very simple. Uh, I'm looking for some audience discipline here. So we'll start yeah. with, with past. In a moment, I'll ask if there's any audience, audience members who want to ask questions about some of the past lessons. But um, perhaps um, we'll, um, we'll bring up one of our polls in a moment but, uh, to, um, about sort of central bank independence. But what I really wanted to ask Stephen, so is, what, what is laid absolutely bare, very clear from your book, is that inflation can get out of control, it gets out of control, it's very expensive and very painful to get it back, uh, back under control. But some of these, these sort of extreme events, you would have hoped that we've learned a bit about what caused them, how, uh, how to avoid them in future. So how, how much, um, how worried should people be about these, these sort of past, past episodes? Have we, have we sort of got past all this? So I, I think if you think about the Bank of England as an example, Bank of England gets its independence in 1997, um, by which time inflation in the UK is already under control. Um, so its job is, is you know, it's tricky, but it's not impossible. Um, and there aren't too many challenges and of course, Irving King famously referred to the sort of nice decade, uh, the non-inflationary, consistently expansionary period, uh, which in one sense characterizes much of what's happened uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, 
However, I, I think that we may have been lulled into a false sense of security for two reasons. First of all, I think central banks themselves don't necessarily have the right models to spot rising inflation in the way that they perhaps should. Um, and secondly, when inflation is established, I think that it is such a, a grotesquely unfair mechanism uh, in society in terms of redistributing income and redistributing wealth that once it's out there, once it's established, it becomes politically difficult to stop it without someone somewhere saying, this is something I object to. Uh, so once it's established, I think it becomes very difficult to get rid of, and, and the costs are great. And you can see this today, actually. If you look at the debate today about you know, getting rid of inflation, a lot of people will say, well, it's only temporary, it's only transitory, it's nothing to worry about. We won't act on it. Um, but if you took that view and turned out to be wrong, uh, let's imagine in three, four, five years' time the inflation's embedded, um, that embedding will make it much more difficult thereafter um, to then get rid of it. Um, because it, it becomes almost like a sort of cancer in the system. It just eats away, it corrodes trust. Um, and I think this is, a, this is a tricky issue for, for politicians and policymakers because they're faced with a difficult choice. Um, do you tackle the inflation now, which will be painful typically, um, unless you're completely credible, uh, and most central banks these days I think are not fully credible, then there will be costs associated with getting rid of the inflation. Um, but, and of course those costs are upfront. It's typically a recession. Um, on the other hand, if you don't have the recession up front, there's a danger that you have a much bigger economic problem later on if the inflation is then established. Um, the other thing I'd note is that um, the book obviously talks about what's happened over the last three years, but I would suggest that the, 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 the fear of deflation was so intense, the fear of the sort of Japanification of the Western world, and I was guilty of, of sort of pushing these fears as much as anybody else, I guess, but the fear was so great um, that I think central banks have undone some of the lessons that have previously been learned. Um, so going back to QE, for example, um, I think one of the issues with QE, which people don't talk about, but I think it's probably important, is that QE has removed what I describe as an early warning signal for inflation. Bond market was always a very useful early warning signal for inflation. Yields would rise, uh, borrowing costs would rise, in anticipation of future inflation, and the central bank would then be under pressure to act to deal with that initial rise in inflation expectations. But I would suggest that QE, in one sense, is a part nationalization of bond markets. It effectively removes part of that early warning system. So imagine you, you say, um, you've decided the world's a very peaceful place, and you say, I do not think, I'm going to assume that there are no more enemy bombing raids, and therefore I'm going to dismantle my radar system. You might think that's perfectly reasonable. And when the next enemy bombing raid comes along, you don't spot it until it's far too late. And I do think that that's been a, a sort of a, almost like a, a change in our institutional arrangements reflecting this fear of deflation at all times and the failure to recognise that inflation can come back to haunt you. Now, now I'm hoping we have a, a poll on this. Now, I'm hoping we can bring up our poll about central banks. So, um, so you, you've just heard Stephen talking about central banks and, uh, you know, the, the, there's a lot of learning from the past that needs to happen. But in terms of what we've done to try and fix high inflation for the, uh, for the future, which is um, across all sorts of countries, give our central banks independent monetary policy, tell them to target 2% inflation. Are you, are you, is it about 
um, for you, Stephen, is about the, having the same level of independence is about right, and just <laughs> learning the lessons. What, what do you think need, things need to change? I, I, I think there's an issue. I write about this in the book, a slightly controversial part of the book. Um, I'm not sort of blaming anyone in particular, but I talk about this in terms of governance. It's not just about independence, it's governance. It's about what is the process by which people are appointed to, for example, the Monetary Policy Committee. How do you guarantee that you have people who are prepared to offer um, you know, diverse opinions within the MPC who are going to question the conventional wisdom? I mean, I, I would argue that the external members are there partly to actually question what the Bank of England internally is doing. And I'm not 100% sure in recent years that you've had a sufficient degree of diversity of opinion. Um, so, I mean, the quotes I gave at the beginning, uh, you can look at the book to work out who said them. But one of those people uh, had a reputation as being a dove, and the other had the reputation of being a hawk. <laughs> they reached exactly the same conclusion at the time. Um, and I, I think back to earlier periods where, um, you know, I, I think, I don't want to make it into personalities about governors, but I would say under Eddie George and Mervyn King, there was a significant degree of diversity of opinion that you looked at the voting patterns in each meeting. You sometimes find that one person was voting for rate increase and two were voting for rate cut. Uh, and you get a sense from the balance between hawks and doves as to how the debate was changing on the committee. And I think over the last few years, we've lost some of that. So I don't think it's just about independence. I think it's about governance of the institution um, and how accountable it is uh, to, you know, let's say, the Treasury Committee or, 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 or Parliament or whatever. Uh, but also, does it have a sufficient diversity of, of, of opinion uh, to be useful at times when there is maximum economic uncertainty? And let's face it, over the last three or four years, we really have had maximum economic uncertainty. And yet, committees mostly assumed an outcome which has proved to be not the right outcome. And no one on the committee was suggesting otherwise. So, so you're talking about reforms rather than more or less independence. I'm going to invite people to vote on this, people at home. Uh, great to get your views, Sylvia. Where, where are you on the, on the job uh, central banks have done? Have, has that move to independence done enough to head off those worries about those, those high inflation episodes uh, in the past? Look, I, I think broadly yes i you know i i would agree with uh, stephen that you know the deflation experience had left some scarring and perhaps also the fact that you know it took a long time after the global financial crisis to get back you know the economies in uh, in in a shape where uh, you know the the out gap was was closed and so perhaps you know a bit more was done that it would have been perfect i don't know but like overall i also think that the central bankers it's not that they sit there and not raise rates. I mean, we need to remember that at this point in time, this is a cycle where, you know, if you consider cumulatively the amount of tightening that has been done in a very short period has been unprecedented in history. So uh, perhaps they started with, I mean, <laughs> it's not just in, if you, I mean, I've gone through, for, for, for something else, through, through all the hiking cycle of uh, the ECB, and Germany before, so taking the most, uh, you know, uh, the hawk central banks, the Bank of England once and somebody else has done for the Fed, and you do a heat map, and it's red on those, uh, on those cumulative amount in nominal terms. In real terms, it obviously depends on how you compute, right, uh, the, the real, whether it's an ex-post, whether it's an ex-ante, whether it's 
spot inflation, but even with spot inflation for the US and for the Euro area, and you know, you know uh, how much hiking you would get per month or you know cumulatively, they have done a lot. So, 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 so what I was going to say was that I, I agree they've done a lot, but I think the starting point also matters. So if you're starting from incredibly low interest rates, it may be that you have to do much more than you would have done in the past. So another way you could look at it is in terms of, I don't know, real rates, taking real spot rates as opposed to real future rates, because real future rates just assume the answer to your question often. But if you take real spot rates, um, in most cases, you haven't gone back to the real rates you would have seen during earlier periods of high inflation where it was then defeated. So, um, you know, in the US during the 1970s, you know, real rates were mostly negative, uh, but they were severely positive at the beginning of the 1980s. Um, in the UK, well, I mean, you might say that spot rate, spot inflation is not relevant currently, but you know, over 10% when when base rates are still very, very low, um, there's still a, a big reward, if you like, for those who can borrow to carry on borrowing. And that includes wage owners who may be getting a real wage cut, but if wages are rising at 7% a year and interest rates are significantly lower, then people who can borrow will borrow. Um, and that strikes me as being a, a potential difficulty in getting a grip on inflation. But it also depends where your real neutral rate is. Perhaps the real neutral rate in the 70s was a bit higher than what the real neutral rates would be today. Ah, all right. right. So we, we, should, we should come back to, <laughs> to, to the world of real neutral rates. I, I like this. This is, this is a good debate. Can we, can we bring up the results of, of the poll? And uh, if there's anyone in the audience with, with burning questions about, uh, about the history part of this, we should, we should, we should do that now. Um, we got we got some results, Tara. Oh yes, okay, right. So they agree. People agree with you, but quite a lot of people want a bit a bit more independence, a bit more sort of eighties Bundesbank. I was going to say it's, it's, it's a German it. Bundesbank thing, isn't it? It's, it's <laughs> tough. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Can we take um, uh, just two quick questions here on the history stuff? There's a microphone there. So. Brilliant. Hello, um, my name is Patrick Newman. Um, I'm in interested in uh, understanding with the current type of inflation we have, which is basically... This sounds like a current question, but sorry, Karen. Um, okay, I'll switch. <laughs> why, <laughs> why didn't uh, quantitative easing create high inflation? Or perhaps it did, but there was just a very long time lag. All right, let's let's take this one because it's um, it's very similar to one that we've had online here as well. If we can, there's technology to be mastered here, and clearly I'm not on top of it. But um, you know, this this um, often talked about role of money, quantitative easing. Um, you know, why, why is that, that not, let's start with Sylvia this time. Well, why has that not created more inflation? I, I think, look, <laughs> quantitative easing obviously, you know, was done at the point where the interest rates, right, were at the very, uh, at the zero bound, right? And so the, the central bank starting by asset to basically, uh, reduce like interest rate also at the long end of the curve. But inflation was not created, you know, during those period of time because the economies were still in a point where uh, 
there was a very, you know, demand was very weak, right? So in order to get, for, for a given supply of goods, right, demand was quite, quite weak. And so even if, you know, you were providing more monetary accommodation, right? <laughs> Perhaps you can say that amount of monetary accommodation was not sufficient enough to generate such a high demand of money, right? That could have generated inflation given the, the, the massive unemployment that there was back then, given how much, uh, you know, um, uh, very low appetite there was for, for investment. Uh, and, and I tend to think about inflation being, you know, if you think of what generated inflation this time, was not just the monetary, you know, stimulus per se. It was a combination of the monetary stimulus coming at the time where the economy, the potential of the economy was almost, you know, uh, constrained, was very constrained by COVID. There was very little spare capacity, and so you had an excess of demand over supply. So it was a combination of two. But per se, quantitative easing or, or monetary easing, perhaps the entire you know stance of monetary policy could have been at point even uh, you know not not stimulative enough. Let me put it this way to generate inflation. Uh, then, you know, we could go more technical. And I think there is an excellent speech of the, uh, you know, external member of the MPC, Silvana Terreiro, that just recently, you know, explained how quantitative easing can be seen, you know, uh, and, and in, interpret as, a, you know, a transformation of, <laughs> of uh, um, uh, you know, short-term uh, reserves, I mean, long-term bonds versus reserves and what that means. But I would say, in, uh, you know, in plain English, to me, it's just because during that period of time, there was a pretty large um, abundance of spare capacity in economies. And so the monetary stimulus did not produce inflation. <laughs> so money matters, but other things matter too. So we, there's another question here. And if this question can segue us onto the current inflation. History. Okay, break, bring it on. Okay. First, my name's Benedict Kohler. Thank you for your talk. Fascinating, especially for the uh, pointing out that inflation over in history has often occurred after warfare. You gave several examples, the Roman Empire, the French Revolution, and the U.S. Civil War. Are we to infer that when we are thinking about inflation, there's an historical lesson? And the reason I ask is because we have a hot war with Russia, a cold war with China. Well... Um, can I answer that one? Yeah, um, sure. And and so to add to it, yeah. um, the is the pandemic like a war? Yeah. Yes. So so so, so first of all, uh, you're absolutely right that a lot of the episodes of of inflation are during wartime. Um, here, I think there's also an important connection between monetary and fiscal policy because wartime is very very expensive fiscally, um, and you don't like to sort of raise taxes or cut back public spending. So what you do instead is is print lots of money to tax those who've got savings to effectively create the resources to spend on the military. Um, and one way you could think about this in the UK's case is that you look at the history of increases in government debt as a share of GDP. The big ones are during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, during World War I, during World War II, and over the last 15 years. Uh, the peculiarity of the last 15 years, of course, is that this has come about not because we've always been at war over the last 15 years, uh, but rather because the denominator uh, has been so incredibly weak. In other words, you know, economic growth has been very, very soft. Inflation has been very, very low. Um, successive governments have promised things that they probably ultimately struggle to afford. But the consequence has been that government debt has risen rapidly as a share of GDP. Now, 
Um, it may be that that doesn't matter. I mean, we know from Japan's example that you can have very high levels of government debt as a share of GDP without it delivering much in the way of inflation. Uh, but I do wonder whether we are getting to a point whereby it's so tough for governments of any persuasion at the moment to deliver promises that deliver lower taxes and decent health care and higher levels of public spending uh, without you know, bumping into a major fiscal constraint. It's so tough partly because economic growth has been so weak, and it really has been over the last 15 years. There's an excellent book about this called When the Money Runs Out, which was written by me 10 years ago. Shameless. But my point really is, is that, again, wartime is, is an illustration of when life becomes very tough, when you have to find ways of commanding resources. Inflation is a way out of it. Uh, and this is why I, I think that where we are today, regardless of the independence of central banks, there is a risk partly because of you know, the hot war in Russia and Ukraine, and partly because, as you say, you know, deteriorating relations between the US and China, uh, that life just becomes more difficult. So in the book, I talk about the end of the great moderation. The great moderation, a lot of central bankers said, it's all to do with us, the idea of you know, stable growth, low inflation, it, it, it's our wisdom. But actually, the original paper on the great moderation had nothing to do with central banks. It was all to do with a series of lucky breaks linked to globalization and the import of cheaper and cheaper goods and services from the likes of China and India. So if you argue that that's beginning to reverse, um, then you may find that if you like, the inflationary threat for any given growth rate is higher now, for a while at least, than it was previously. So obviously you still have to accommodate that through some kind of monetary policy, but I, I do think that it comes back to this issue that inflation is a political and social choice. It's not just a case of saying low inflation, stable inflation is good for all time. Great. As though we're, we're, this has been appallingly chaired, so we're, we're, on a, we're moving quickly now through to the, to the present part of the discussion. So, we, we, uh, um, Tara, if you can bring up our poll on the future of inflation, I'm going ha- to do one question to Sylvia on the sources of inflation and what that means for the persistence of inflation, and a question, including on Slido, to Stephen about who is paying the cost of inflation. But while these guys think about those, uh, those tough questions, I want you to think about where all this is leading you in terms of thinking about what's happening in terms of the future of inflation. Do you expect uh, inflation to be in sort of two or three years' time? Do you expect it to be a central bank's target of 2%? Or do you expect it to be, as Steve has argued, um, worryingly above target, potentially more long-lasting than, than we might have expected? Or do you think we might get some sort of period of uh, low inflation? So do vote on that as we, uh, as we go through. Sylvia, on the sources of inflation, what, what, um, just um, explain to people why we've got inflation so high and what, what you think that means for what's coming in the, in the next few months. Well, if you go back to the first cause of inflation, I think that there are differences across the various countries. I mean, in our work, we think that for the euro area and for the UK, the principal source of inflation was you know, a supply-side driven inflation. It was driven by the energy shock. Um, for the US, the, uh, the, the demand side, it was initially more a demand pool type of inflation. And I think it was reflected, I mean, the difference is um, 
come from, from how different the fiscal stimulus were in the two different parts of the world, uh, both in terms of sizes and in just, you know, if you compare the US and the Euro area and the US, the cumulative fiscal stimulus was something around 25% of GDP in the Euro area was more of the order of 10. <laughs> and, and also the composition, it was in the US mainly geared to consumption, it was more direct to investment or, you know, um, tax credit, I mean, uh, moratoria in, in the euro area and guarantees. I mean, if, uh, if you think about how the situation developed, obviously, you know, as, as uh, you know, we, we had the reopening of the economies as demand strengthened in the euro area as well, part of this initial supply side shock was obviously facilitated by the fact that demand was strong and firms could pass on the initial shock to, uh, to prices and demand was certainly a, a contributor of that. But I think the fact that if you compare the behavior of consumption is striking. We have consumption in the US that is slightly above trend relative to what it was pre-COVID and in the Euro area or in the UK, consumption is not even at the pre-COVID level. So to claim that it was a demand was a pretty big pull originally in, uh, in this part of the Atlantic, I think it's, uh, it's something that we don't agree on. So, so can I respond to that? Because I don't fully agree. Um, you have good. to disagree, don't we? So, so why don't... It's compulsory, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly, <laughs> that's what I thought. Um, so, um, so the reason I don't fully agree is that most of the big banks, I'm sure yours does as well as mine does, publish these so-called surprise indices. Uh, sort of, you know, comparing inflationary or growth outcomes compared with what the market was assuming at any particular point in time. And what is striking about the surprise indices, at least the excellent HSBC ones, I can't speak for the others, <laughs> uh, is that looking at inflationary surprises, when, they start, when inflation started to surprise on the upside, it first happened in the US. And I, I think you're absolutely right that for a few weeks, people were able to say this is Biden fiscal stimulus, it's entirely a, a US phenomenon. The problem, for me at least, is that the surprises started to come through within about six weeks in both the Eurozone and in the UK. Um, and they were surprising in very, very early 2021, so a year before Putin invades Ukraine. So I, I've got no problem with the idea that inflation in Europe is higher than it would have been because of the increase in energy prices. My concern is that the, the increase in inflation started a year before Putin did his thing. Can I, can I say something? Uh, I mean, one, there was the supply chain constraint that COVID created was generated across the board. So sure. it was, you know, that's a supply story. We knew that there were containers outside ports everywhere, firms, factories were closing. Second, obviously, there is a global component which is driven by the non-energy industrial goods. This is uh, the tradable goods. And obviously, if they go, if there is an extraordinary amount of demand in the US and you have a traded good, it's likely that this price increases everywhere. So take the auto, auto right? We couldn't mm -hmm. produce. So in that sense, but those were, you know, demand pool generated by the US that were transmitted into Europe. Europe. I mean, I don't think that in Europe there was this extraordinary demand for cars, right? And, and that was matched with supply side constraints that were coming from COVID. I agree with you that it was the, 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 the inflation began before you know, the, the, the invasion of, the, uh, of Ukraine. But also, for example, if you look at gas prices, they went up much sooner. And it was also because it was linked to the energy transition, the fact that there was not enough investment in energy. So, 
but, but yeah, I, I tend I, to I, characterize those as supply. So, so we, we, yeah. should, we should touch on the, on the costs <laughs> of inflation. So this, yeah. this sort of international inflation that we were, we were just talking about, Diva, who, who is hit hardest by this? And um, I wanted to just bring up a question asked by Emily on uh, Slido, which speaks a bit to the, the sort of wage bit of this, because the yeah. extra... Um, the extra kicker for some workers in the UK economy is what's happening to uh, to wages. And uh, what's your view on the difference between public and private sector wages and how and how that should be resolved? That's a very unfair question, but you can play for time by talking by, about costs first. Not at all. Um, so first of all, um, it's important to separate, I think, an inflationary process from a co cost of living crisis. A cost of living crisis arguably is a in terms of trade shock, which is deeply negative for most people, it basically means that prices are going up compared with wages, compared with other incomes, you know, non-wage incomes as well, and people are genuinely worse off. And I guess this is what, what Hugh Pill was trying to get at uh, when he was talking on his podcast or whatever it was last week that generated probably the headlines he didn't necessarily want. Um, however, um, it is also important to stress, and I think this is true of almost all inflations, that they, that the ability of different groups in society to, to be able to negotiate an outcome varies at, at all times. The idea that we have a perfectly indexed society whereby inflation is only a nominal event that has no consequences for anyone at all, this is nonsense. Um, and I think it's a, it's a worrying message to give across because it makes it look as though somehow we could ignore inflationary problems altogether. Now, there's another Bank of England personally gave a speech um, last week, Ben Broadbent, um, and he talked about the idea of a monetary-driven inflation not being relevant for where we are currently because if it was a monetary-driven inflation, all prices would have risen at the same time. But that isn't true. Um, th that isn't the case because what tends to happen is that you have cer certain markets where prices are incredibly flexible and other markets where they, you know, they move grudgingly in a sort of ratchet effect over a long period of time. And go back to actually the example of my pocket money and the book buying in the 1970s. It's a good example of it that you know, the prices were going up on books all the time. My pocket money, thanks to my very generous father, uh, would only rise <laughs> once in the blue moon. So the idea that I knew for definite that I was no better off and no worse off as a consequence of rising wages, that wasn't true. So, so, so at the moment, I, I, I think it's fair to say that there are people in society who are better able to protect themselves against inflation. Now, back in the 1970s, when unions were much more powerful, you might well have said that there were certain wage owners who were members of powerful unions who were well protected. Today, that clearly isn't the case because union membership has gone down dramatically. Uh, so you haven't got that kind of story. Uh, but in terms of companies who may have pricing power, well, maybe they're the ones who are now winning compared with some of the unions back in the 1970s. But the idea that this is a sort of price gouging story alone, which is a very neat political point to make, that's fine. Uh, but the, the truth is, I think, that if your monetary conditions are too loose in the first place, then someone somewhere in society will find a way of pushing prices higher. So this comes back to the central issue, really, which is that if you want to defeat inflation, you've got to get your monetary conditions right. Um, if you try to sort of stop inflation by having price controls or wage controls, whatever it might be, the chances are it's going to fail. Now, there's a very interesting book that's written about price controls and wage controls in the US, which I read for my research into writing this book. Um, and some people have quoted this book as saying, well, this proves that price controls and wage controls work. But the author says, well, they can work. Uh, but first of all, they require a dramatic reduction um, in economic freedoms. We might put up during wartime, but probably not during peacetime. But secondly, 
they tend only to work if they are buttressed by the appropriate monetary policy. And if you haven't got the appropriate monetary policy, the chances are your price and wage controls will simply keel over. Um, so I think you know, winners and losers vary across different inflationary episodes. But the idea that inflationary episodes are neutral, that I think is wrong. So we're, let's move on to prospects for inflation. So we're, we're running out of time. Some might say we've run out of time, but let's, let's, um, let's push on very quickly with, with prospects for inflation. So can we bring up the, um, uh, the results of our poll about where inflation is headed? And I will ask uh, Sylvia first and then Stephen to have a last <laughs> word on uh, whether, they, whether they agree with our audience that um, inflation is off into into the stratosphere, um, and it's, there's no returning it back to, back to target. Sylvia, what, what would you say in, in closing on, on the future? One, I would say that, you know, we disagree, our forecasts are different, but the, the question, it, it's, it's this is based not a forecast. on what, No, I want to say, <laughs> depends on what set of conditions you, you, you think will prevail together with inflation, right? I mean, it's a bit, you want to say where inflation is going, you have to say where growth is going, how, how long interest rates are going to be higher, how much higher. It's a very, but very the, other thing, <laughs> the other thing I would say, to close on a positive note, think we were, we, we were so much you know, influenced by deflation, right? The last things that happened to us that we, as, as Steve said, we were too worried that inflation never came back. And now we are living through uh, this period of very high inflation. Let's hope that, you know, we are just shocked by that and, and we can perhaps meet in a few years and have a different situation. All right. Okay. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Even, but well, I think there might be a sampling problem here, which is that everyone in the audience or watching at home is probably terrified <laughs> of inflation and therefore we've got a biased sample. But nevertheless, um, I think the idea that you know, five years ago we'd get a result like this, I think would be totally implausible. So I think something has shifted, that worries have shifted. And, and Sylvia, maybe we write that it's just a sort of front of mind at the moment. But I, I do think when you look at the, the forecast that central bankers have made over the last two or three years, I can tell you what, how the forecasts work. Uh, the current number goes up, the one-year-ahead number goes up, the two-year-ahead number is always at two or below two, regardless of what's going on. Uh, central bankers... Very sceptical. Well, they, they, they have inflationary perfection built in because they are fully credible. But the problem is if, if the public don't think they're fully credible anymore, then they're in trouble. Exactly. Not the public, the central banks are in trouble, <laughs> just in case you're wondering. Yeah. This has been absolutely fascinating. Sorry for slightly running over. Really great discussion. Can we thank our panellists, uh, Sylvia and Stephen, for an absolutely great discussion? And, and thanks so much for, for coming and for watching online. And don't forget the book is available upstairs. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.